I'd just like to freak you all out who wear hearing devices. Uh, anyway, Revelation chapter 18, part 1, and uh, we're going to be talking about the irreversible final throwdown of Babylon, talking about uh, intercourse today. It's going to be interesting because of how God describes it with the whore of Babylon, etc. So uh, let's begin, of course, with prayer, hearing the word of God set to music, and sit in silence for a second, come back and get into our study. Lord, seek you and need you and love you. Uh, pray your wisdom and your light as we study this book. And uh, we just pray that it will help us in our faith, help us in our walk, help us as Christians, uh, and not make us uh, argumentative or uh, divisive or uh, in any way uh, separatists, but help us to use the content of this book to understand what you've done, where you are, and what we're doing now in relation to it. We pray for these things now. In Jesus' name, amen. For whoever shall keep the whole and yet stumble in one point, he Whoever shall keep the whole 
on yet stumble in one point he is guilty of all for whoever shall keep the whole on yet stumble in one point For whoever shall keep the whole on yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. All right. Chapter 17, we've covered 17, 18, 19, all about the wrapping up of Babylon, which has fallen Judea, rejected the Messiah, coming of Christ, wipe it out. All of it's been about that. And uh, chapter 17, much has been said about Babylon and her identity. Um, we're going to continue reading through. Let's read through the contents of chapter 18, remembering that there is a bride those are the believers in Christ, and there is a whore, or a whore, as the, as the guys back east say, a reprobate nation of Israel. And um, we're going to be looking at some passages that at face value, it's difficult to assign to Israel once and for all, so it's going to be interesting to cover them, but let's read it first. One thing before we go. When I said last week, I think it was, that I am a partial preterist up to this point in the book of Revelation, what I'm saying is all the evidence thus far certainly proves partial preterism. Full preterism, and whether that's a reality or not, is going to be covered in chapters uh, 19, uh, 20, 21, and 22. That's where the marriage of the bride comes and everything is fulfilled. That will be when we see if full preterism is the deal. But when I say I am convinced of partial preterism, I'm talking in, in, in terms of the book of Revelation has proven, in my estimation, partial preterism true. I am a full preterist, but Revelation and our study of it thus far has proven uh, partial preterism true. All right, let's read uh, Revelation 18, 1 through the end. John says, and after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that be ye not, excuse me, that ye be not partakers of her sins 
that ye be, receive not of her plagues. Come out of her, so you aren't partaking of her sins and plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she is rewarded you, even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works in the cup which she had filled, fill to her double. Tough language there. How much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her. For she said in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Now, uh, I'm just going to stop right there. That's a description, apparently, of the destruction of Babylon, who I would say is the whore uh, of Judah, fallen Israel. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her. For when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off, for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is the judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thine wood, and all manner vessels of ivory, and all manner vessels of most precious wood, and of brass, and iron, and marble, and cinnamon, and odors, and ointments, and frankincense, and wine, and oil, and of fine flour, and wheat, and beasts, and sheep, and horses, and chariots, and slaves, and the souls of men. And the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee. And all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things, which were made rich by her, shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and, excuse me, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour so great riches has come to naught. And every shipmaster and all the company of ships and the sailors and as many trade by sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, the great city wherein we were made rich, all the land ships, all the, and, excuse me, where we were made rich, all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness. For in one hour, third time, she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. Remember that line, rejoice, you prophets, Apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you upon her. And a mighty angel took a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall the great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. 
and the voice of harpers and musicians and pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee, and no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee, and the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee, and the light of a candle shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and all that were slain upon the earth. That wraps up 18. So, let's begin by asking ourselves some questions. Did you see some things mentioned in this, words and phrases, that we've already touched on in our study of Revelation thus far? In Revelation 10, an angel with a mighty voice is mentioned. Kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, as mentioned in Revelation 17. Babylon was arrayed in the same manner, Revelation 17.4. The great city is mentioned in Revelation 11, 2, and 8, and also 18, 2, 10, 16, 18, 19, 21. Babylon was full of the blood of the prophets and saints, Revelation 16, 17, Matthew 23. And Babylon's self-sufficiency is similar to what John wrote to the church of Laodicea, which we covered back in Revelation 3, verse 17. So we see that Babylon vividly described in these chapters as being sexually immoral. That is something that is brought up, verses 3 and 9 in this chapter. Unclean, in verse 2, full of luxury, riches, and wealth, 3, 7, 9, 14. A great city, Six times called a great city in this chapter. The killer of saints, apostles, and prophets. Two verses in this chapter. Famine, death, judgment, and mourning are upon her. Mentioned in five verses in this chapter. And we also have some major contrasts in this chapter, which you may or may not have seen. We have a contrast between luxury, wealth, riches, and greatness, which John describes here in this chapter, versus plague, death, mourning, and famine. So he's, he's giving us some comparisons. We also have sexual immorality with standing afar off, is how it's put in verse 10. We have sexual immorality. That means engaging, being included in, and then standing afar off. We have rejoicing on the part of the saints in verse 20. We have weeping and mourning on the part of the merchants in verse 11. And then finally in this chapter, we have wealth, greatness, industry, splendor versus desolation and darkness. So this chapter is really pushing us toward the great finale, final picture of Babylon and her ultimate complete destruction where no light will shine, no music will be heard. No, and how are we going to explain that? We know that there is a place called Jerusalem today where merchants are all over the place and they're still selling and there's still people in the city singing. How do you explain it when it says, and no more shall? We'll discover that as we get to those verses. So go, let's get at it. Go back to verse 1. John says, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power and the earth was lighted with his glory. Now in chapter 17, John was spoke to and carried away in the spirit by one of the seven angels who had the, one of the seven bowls. Another angel came down from heaven here who had great power, and it says that 
that, that the earth was lighted with his glory. The earth. The earth there is Gehei, by the way. Or, uh, so it's not the cosmos, the earth, the area was lighted. Uh, this angel is now going to speak and says it, verse 2, And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. That is really wild language. Before we get into what those words mean in verse 2, this angel represents something really important. John's saying, I see another one. Because it brings, with great power, uh, lights the earth with his glory, right? And in the glimpse of this, to me, this angel represents God's end game. John is getting close to Christ taking his bride. He has to, Babylon the whore has to be destroyed first. Fallen Israel. And so we're seeing that in this chapter in 19 and in 17. And then, but this angel is showing, hey, we see an angel coming. Great light is going to be shown. And to me, that is saying that he's representing the final phase of God's great glory once the whole scene of Babylon has been taken care of. Perhaps the beginning of his glory is coming now here in this, in this scene that John has seen. And we're beginning to see the light the, the bride's light starting to shine and Christ the bridegroom coming starting to shine. Uh, old Israel, which had become corrupt, as corrupt as a thing can be when we read Josephus' account of what was going on in Jerusalem at the time, and, uh, and not just Josephus, really ugly stuff. So corrupt, they had turned from the living God to fables and to traditions and to carnality, and uh, killing the Messiah, old Israel was about to die. Once and for all, it was dark. And its complete death, and all things related to it, going to the grave, God has established the new Jerusalem, which is administered from heaven. That The temple in the new Jerusalem is in heaven. That is where its administration is from. And we are participants in that new Jerusalem spiritually. And so the new Jerusalem is now going to be permanent and continuing kingdom here on earth. And I think that angel coming with great power and light to the earth is symbolic of this new gospel, this new dispensation. And it will be fulfilled, as I just said, with the complete destruction of Babylon. So to me, this angel represents the heavenly rain coming down to earth and how does this begin? It begins with the old school falling, dying, and being completely obliterated, which we're going to study. Verse 2, And he, the glorious angel from heaven, cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. It's repeated. And is become, listen to the description here of Babylon, fallen Israel is become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit. She's a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Okay? So let's take these descriptions one by one and talk about them. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. First of all, this line comes from Isaiah 21, 8 through 10. This is what Isaiah said way back in Isaiah's day. 
He cried, A lion, my lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime and am set in my ward whole nights. And behold, here cometh a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the graven images of her gods he has broken to the ground. O oh, my threshing, the corn of my floor, that which I have heard the, load of ho the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have I declared to you. So back in uh, talking about the, the, the fall here, not uh, the end, talking about in uh, Isaiah's time, Babylon falling, falling. He's describing it, but it's also a type and picture for what's going to come at the end. So that's why the angel coming from heaven, he echoes these sentiments that Isaiah gave some 1,500 years earlier, maybe not that many years earlier, but some 900 years earlier. Note the fact that Babylon is fallen implies that Babylon was once a high, lofty place. In order for something to fall, it has to fall from a height. And so Ezekiel describes Israel in these terms. Israel was once up in the, uh, the clefts of the rocks uh, and eagles and hovering above. Now she's fallen, she's fallen, right? So in Ezekiel 17, 23, it says, In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it. Again, symbolic of Israel being at this high place, God says. And it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. And under it shall dwell every fowl of every wing. And shall the branches thereof, excuse me, and in the branches, and in the shadow of the branches thereof, they shall dwell. So we have this picture of her being up there in this beautiful garden-like city that God has established high up. In Ezekiel 24, God says, For in my holy mountain, in the mountain of the height of Israel, saith the Lord God, there shall all of the house of Israel, all of them in the land, serve me. There will I accept them, and there will I require of their offerings, the first fruits of your oblations with your holy things. And then we also read in Isaiah, and Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, excellency, she shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So again, we're talking about Babylon in Isaiah's day, falling like Sodom and Gomorrah fell. We have a picture of that in the Old Testament. Now we have it being fulfilled in the new with the end of that economy, the end of the Jewish economy completely. Patrick, do me a favor and open this door, will you? Okay. Back, uh, back in Revelation 14.8, um, we read, and there followed another angel saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. So we've read this earlier in chapter 14. That great city, because she made all nations drink the wine and wrath of her fornication. So here in the summation book of Revelation, Revelation is a summation book of, 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 of the whole Bible, Babylon, Israel, has fallen from its heights, and once again and forevermore, uh, that's why I think the angel repeats it twice. I could be wrong on this. This, is, this makes sense to me, but Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen. It means she fell once, it's, she's fallen again, and it's not coming back. That's how I would interpret it. But She's fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit. So that's how she's described. Now, I think Jesus talked about this state that she was in, uh, Israel, 
and he describes it in uh, Matthew 12, 38 through 45. Listen to what he says here, okay? Then certain scribes and of the Pharisees said, Master, we would see a sign from you. And he said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall be no sign given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly. So shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, signaling his coming death. Then he says, The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Remember in verse 39, Jesus mentioned that they're an evil generation because they were seeking after a sign. He says, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. So he says, Nineveh is going to judge you because someone greater than Jonah is here. Nineveh repented. You won't repent with someone greater than Jonah in your presence. So Nineveh will therefore judge you. Then at verse 42, he gives another example. The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, for she shall from the uttermost parts of the earth hear the wisdom of Solomon. And he said, Behold, greater than Solomon is here. So he says, The queen of the earth who uh, listened to Solomon, she's going to judge you, Israel, today, because I'm greater than Solomon and you wouldn't listen to me. Then he says, he launches into this teaching, which is fascinating and applicable to that generation who Jesus was talking to. He says, Suddenly, when an unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walks through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I'll return to my house from where I came out. And when he has come, he finds it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so it shall be unto this wicked generation. That's why he told that story. He says, that's how it is. You, you, when you're a generation that has uh, been cleansed of de demons and cleansed of devils, and those devils wander around in dry places and they come back and they find the place clean and empty, they move back in and your state is worse than it's ever been which was the state they were in right before their destruction in 70 AD. So I think Jesus was describing that because he talks about that condition being uh, uh, assigned to them in that generation. With Babylon representing fallen Israel, especially Jerusalem, we're able to understand that spiritual and even physical, the, the physical state of the nation at that time. Babylon, the greatest fallen has fallen, has become a habitation of devils. You guys were cleansed of devils, and look, they've moved back in sevenfold. You're worse than you've ever been. And uh, a hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Now, obviously, this isn't speaking of Rome, but of Jerusalem itself as the head of the nation of Israel in that day. So, let me appeal to Isaiah again. In Isaiah 13, 21, 22, he says, But the wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls shall dwell there, and satyrs shall dance there, 
And the wild beasts of the islands shall cry in their desolate houses, and dragons in their pleasant places. And her time is near come, and her days shall not be prolonged. Happened to them in that day was a picture and type for what was about to happen permanently in Jesus' day. Uh, Isaiah 34, 14 reads, The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island, and the satire shall cry to his fellow, and the screech owl shall find rest there, and shall find herself a place of rest. Jeremiah uh, prophesies, saying, Therefore the wild beasts of the desert with the wild beasts of the island shall dwell there, and the owl shall dwell there, and there shall be no more inhabited forever, neither shall it be dwelt in generation from generation. Again, that is prophetic of what would happen to Israel uh, in the future. And so we have to ask, what does it mean it won't be dwelt in from generation to generation? Israel is dwelt in today. Jerusalem has people in it today. How could you say this is applicable to uh, way back then when we know there's still people living there? We'll answer that when we uh, move further along. Jeremiah 51:37 says, And Babylon shall become heaps, a dwelling place for dragons, an astonishment and a hissing, without an inhabitant. So we have a biblical precedence here for certain places, some place becoming desolate, the home of unclean animals and birds and, and uh, dragons and, um, so, and no more inhabitants. It's really quite the picture. It's like the opening picture of an apocalyptic movie where someone's staggering through a wasteland and it's filled with all these creatures and, and non-human gargoyles and birds that are evil stuck flying around in the place. That's what it's describing. That's why it says here in Revelation 18, and, every, and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird, that it, Babylon is going to become the cage for that. Now, birds... In many, many places in the scripture are viewed as evil things. It's not that they're all evil because in, there's clean birds and there's uh, unclean birds. The unclean birds, which we're going to read about in just a second, they are types and pictures of the souls of men who would live in Babylon at this time, who would live in Israel at this time in Jerusalem that are about to be slaughtered. So there's a parallel to the unclean birds and fowls of Scripture to the souls of Judah once it has fallen, has fallen. That's what's happening here. Going all the way back to Joseph prior to the law, prior to uh, uh, Moses receiving the law in Genesis, it says in Genesis 40:16, there's a guy who has a dream. It says, and when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also was in a dream, and behold... There were three white baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket was one of all manner of baked meats for Pharaoh. And the birds did eat them out of the baskets upon my head. This is going way before the law. Talking about birds of the air coming in devouring those things in the basket. And Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation thereof. The three baskets are three days. Yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thy head from off thee. And shall hang thee on a tree, and the birds shall eat thy flesh from off thee. It was a bad omen. Birds were a very bad, ominous omen when used in certain ways in Scripture. Um, 
We know that the birds in um, Moses' day in the book of Leviticus, it's Leviticus 11, 13 through 19, are described as birds that are clean and birds that are unclean. Now, I want you to imagine the type of birds mentioned here in the unclean list that have gathered around in your living room or here where we're sitting right now. Just imagine these birds, all right? And these are they which have an abomination among fowls. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, would you feel safe if an eagle was perched there in your living room? I wouldn't. Okay? An ossifrage and an osprey. I don't know what they are, and I didn't look it up. The vulture, the kite after his kind, every raven after his kind, the owl, the nighthawk, the cacao, and the hawk after his kind, the little owl, second time owls are mentioned, and the cormorant, and the great owl, third time owls are mentioned, the swan, the pelican, the grier eagle, the stork, the heron after her kind, and the lapwing, and the bat. Those were all unclean birds that the children of Israel could not eat. All right? To me, I think there is a type and picture being put here. When uh, John describes that uh, Jerusalem will become, fallen uh, uh, Babylon will become the cage for every unclean, hateful, he says, bird. <coughs> you know what's interesting about that list? Is that it's not an it's not a, uh, exhaustive list of birds, is it? So what would happen if a Jew uh, got onto a boat, like the Mormons say, and went to... Uh, Polynesian islands, and there was a parrot. Could they have turned to the law and discovered if they could eat the parrot or not? They couldn't have. And I point this out because the scripture was talking to them in their environment, and the, and the animals that were available in that environment were either allowed or forbidden. And that's why we don't have many other animals listed in here, because they weren't indigenous to the nation of Israel and their relationship with animal life. So we can see from that that there is going to be an end of that. That there will be no reason for Israel, Judaism, to go on into a worldwide move. It was wiped out in 70 AD because when it went out into the world, there's no guide on what they could really eat and couldn't. It was just on animals and things within their geography, and that's why the scriptures limited to those things. I think that's an interesting thing to consider. In any case, these types of forbidden birds are very picturesque when you consider them gathered around you in a, in a threatening place. Finally, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus gives parables, and in those parables, he often uses birds in a negative sense, not in a positive. You remember the good um, the parable of the sower, the, someone cast on wayside soil, and the birds of the air come and gobble those seeds up. Jesus then explains the parable of the sower. What does he say the birds of the air are? Satan. Satan comes and gobbles them up. Again, a type and picture of the birds not being necessarily good. Not all of them, but some of them. And then we know that he gives a parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Listen, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is great among herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Most people read that as a beautiful, positive thing. I think in the context of those parables, it's not a positive thing. 
And we proved that from context. I can't go into it here. But it's another insight of birds in Scripture not being necessarily good. So the evilness of birds is also seen in other places. This is not to say all, like I said, birds are evil. But Revelation 18.2, we can see how those who are remaining in Israel, Babylon, are represented by unclean and hateful birds is the word that John uses. The imagery of them being caged means they have been collected and gathered up into the body of that whore. That's, that's what they are. They're a collection of bad birds gathered up in that body of that whore, and they're going to come to their end. Um, so verse 3, the mighty angel says, after he says they're a caged bird, hateful birds caged up, for all nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Now, is this sexual immorality mentioned here? Uh, is it fornication in the literal, actual sense that we speak of fornication? Uh, or is it a spiritual adultery, a spiritual fornication with pagan or idolatrous things? Um, we note that in Scripture, idolatry, when it was assigned to the nation of Israel, fornication to the nation of Israel, was they were to be married to God, and they kept going after false gods. They kept having intercourse with uh, pagan groups. They kept marrying and adopting their practices and building their altars and they had uh, relations with and they were called fornicators and adulterers it wasn't that they were necessarily initially when they got involved with them having uh, uh, a fornicate sexual fornication with them but ultimately that's the end result that is why uh, throughout the new testament the apostles are always warning believers don't get engaged with the, the people of this world, the things of this world, because your intercourse with them, your social intercourse with them, could, might lead to physical intercourse with them. And when children are then produced, and we have a whole new series of problems, and the body is wiped out. So these, these ideas of fornication are both uh, literal in some ways, and they're very picturesque of spiritual depravity of God's people engaging in relationship with other uh, things. Uh, I don't think that the fact that it, it means spiritual fornication doesn't preclude the fact that it usually ends up to actual fornication. And that was part of the warning too. The language is used towards Jerusalem before Israel's fall at the end of Babylon, uh, at the hand of Babylon in 586 BC. Same language um, it says in Ezekiel, I think we've read it before, but Ezekiel 16, 14 says, And the renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty. And the renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty. For it was perfect through my comeliness, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty and played the harlot because of thy renown, and poured out thy fornications on every one that passed by, his it was. And of thy garments thou did take, and deckest thy high places with diverse colors, and plays the harlot thereupon, 
like the things that should not come and it shall be so. That's a clear picture of the nation of Israel playing the harlot, being the whore, and engaging with other nations. In Ezekiel 16.26, God says, Thou hast also committed fornication with the Egyptians, thy neighbors, great of flesh, and hast increased thy whoredoms to provoke me to anger. Now, it could have been actual sexuality. It could have been commerce. It could have been pagan practices. It's really all of it, because Scripture refers to all of it being the same. And then in Ezekiel 16, 28, 29, God says, Thou hast played the whore also with the Assyrians, because thou uh, wast insatiable, he says. You're a nation of insatiable creatures, like the uh, town whore, male or female. You are going about insatiably having a number of partners I'm married to you, Israel. You're playing the whore. Uh, because thou is insatiable, yea, you have played the harlot with them, and you could not be satisfied. It's a stage of uh, dissatisfaction, no matter how fallen you have, uh, how far you have fallen. And that's the picture we're getting of the whore of Babylon, what Judah had become after she killed her Messiah and was persecuting the saints, and they're trapped like a caged bird in Jerusalem, getting ready to be wiped out. Um, How weak is thine heart, saith the Lord God, seeing thou dost all these things, the work of an imperious, (coughs) whorish woman. He finishes. Sorry for my dry throat. So I want to point something out here. We want the book of Revelation to have application to us as Christians. Most people still try, first of all, one point, they try to see the Christian faith as embodied by nations. They're a Christian nation, we say. Like the U.S. um, uh, or of godly nations like Israel. They're being godly nations, we say. But since the fall of Babylon and the coming of the New Jerusalem from on high, the New Jerusalem spiritually makes believers everywhere, not nations. It makes believers everywhere, not nations. We started uh, from Constantine to present-day America. Uh, Christians are uh, not a nation or a group. We don't govern a complete place. It's the individuals, all right, period. So every individual is judged and seen as whorish Israel was seen back in the day. They were unitedly judged. They were collectively the whore. We individually are looked at uh, in terms of do we have fornication with the world? And in all the same senses, this has application. Do we engage with pagan practices in the world as people... uh, Married to Christ, so to speak, as Christians, as God's children, are we, as his children, playing in the fields of paganism? And if we are, that is having intercourse with the things of the world. So the crime is one and the same. Um, We become whorish housers of the Holy Spirit. We too can become whorish when we allow ourselves to engage with anyone over and above God. That is why the, the, the primary commandment is to love God and then love our neighbors as ourselves in that order. But if you start putting anything above God first, you are having relations with that thing. And it can be anything under the sun. And that is why God is constantly telling us to come out of those fornicating practices with other things and be faithful to him in our walk. 
That's the correlation in Scripture. So, um, just like old Israel went after other gods and went after other philosophies and then became sexually immoral, etc., etc., they went a whoring, as the Old Testament says. We too uh, can do the same thing. Listen to the angel's description of her and those who have engaged with her. For all nations have drunk the wine and wrath of her fornication. That, that word nations, there's ethnicities, ethnos, all tribes. And the kings of the Gehei, the area, have committed fornication with her, this whore. We're talking about the Jews and their intercourse with Rome and with everything that was going on in the world because they have no king but Caesar. And uh, the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. So other nations and other ethnicities have have garnered greatly from having intercourse with the whore of Babylon. They've gotten rich, they've gotten wealthy from the things that she offered. A clear description of the things on earth today still. Um, notice the words, the merchants of the earth wax rich, the abundance of her delicacies. All of those things are not just sexual. It's, it's just anything that is uh, of this world. Um, a direct reference, a dalliance with the things of this wor world. At verse 4, even though Babylon has fallen, has fallen, we hear one last petition uh, to anybody who might be a person of God at that time. We're coming to the end here before Christ takes his bride. So we have, we have a, a petition here. Verse 4 said, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people that you be not partakers of her sins, that you receive not of her plagues. You see, she has plagues that are coming down on her. We've talked about them, vials and bowls and, and, and all these different plagues have fallen upon her. Come out of her. That's why I'm sending these plagues. I want you to see that there is nothing but death in relationship to her. Come out of that trap. Escape from that trap. Leave that trap. Now, remember when Jesus walked the earth and he taught his apostles in Matthew, he said, listen, I'm going to tell you something, when to get out of her. Do you remember that? Do you remember what he said? So uh, let me just talk about the concept of coming out of, out of her, my people, in Scripture. Jeremiah 58, uh, 58 uh, God says, Remove out of the midst of Babylon and go forth into the land of the Chaldeans and be as he goats before the flock. The idea is, listen, you're mine, get out, get out of that relationship with the other pagans. Stop having intercourse with them. That's the command. We can't help but note the words as graphic as they are here. The angel calls her a whore and full of, of uh, immorality. And the angel, like God in the Old Testament, tells the children there here in Revelation, get out of her. Uh, which is akin, pull yourself away from your intercourse with the whore. Get out of that relationship with her. She will destroy you. Not a woman, not females, this personification of his fallen Israel. She will, so you have to make the decision. You know, we talk sometimes in theological circles about free will or non-free will. Well, it seems to me like there's a lot of free will when God is saying, come out of her, come out of her, and they don't do it. That there is something on our part to make the decision to turn and walk away from the whores that we're having intercourse with in the world. 
whether it's commercialism or materialism or, or any kind of fleshly desire, you have to make the decision to follow your God first and foremost and come out, make that decision to walk away from her or him, whichever one is the whore in your life. Failure to do so, right here, failure to do so results in what? 70 AD and what happened to Jerusalem. That's what happens. And so as a final effort, this angel is saying, come out now, get out now, because you're going to participate in her plagues, is what is said. So uh, the, in order to have some application, which we don't often get with Revelation to our Christian lives, if you are involved with fornication with something in the world, guess what? You have to decide to come away from it. You have to make the decision that you're not going to do it. And if you don't make the decision, you will share in her plagues. That's the message here for Israel and for us. Jesus said this in, in Luke 21, 20 through 23. He said this to his disciples to tea and to see. When you shall see Jerusalem encompassed by armies. That's what he told them. Then know that the desolation, which is a word used all through Revelation, is nigh. He's telling his apostles, when you see it, know the desolation is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. He gives a warning because he's giving them a warning, but he's also realizing they have a choice. Someone could say, yeah, Jesus said that, but I'm not going to flee. But he says, flee. And let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let them which are in the countries, uh, uh, let them not that are in the countries enter into. Okay? When you see the armies compassed around Jerusalem, when you see the armies compassed around the whore of Babylon, get the heck out of Dodge. And don't let people who are on the outside go in. That's the picture Revelation is given. We have a whore, and she wants to have relations with you, and you go in, you're going to share in her plagues. So there's one final call here to these people. Get out, or you're going to share in the plagues. If you move to the epistle of Hebrews, it's essentially one giant book to Jews. And the, it's a giant book saying, we're going to follow Jesus because he is the high priest, and we're not going to follow along with these old temple rituals and all these stuff that's gone on in the past, yada, yada, yada. And the whole book is essentially saying, come out. Stay out. Don't get involved again. In Hebrews 20, uh, 12, 25 through 29, you'll recognize these passages. It says, see that you refuse him not that speaks. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, meaning Moses, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven? New Jerusalem, he's speaking from heaven. You turn away from him. Whose voice shook the earth, but now has promised saying, yet once more I will shake the earth, uh, not only the earth, but heaven also. I was talking about this end time here. Yet once more, I'm going to shake it. And he says, and this word yet once more signifies the removing of the things that are shaken as things which are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 13, 13 says, let us go forth, therefore, unto him outside the camp. Jesus was taken outside the, uh, uh, the city gates. 
and he was crucified where the refuse and dogs were. And here uh, the writer of Hebrews says, let's go forth therefore outside the camp. Go outside bearing his reproach. For we have no continuing city. We seek one to come. There's nothing for us on this earth. Don't engage with the things of this world. And especially Hebrews, don't engage in the city limits. That's the whore of Babylon. It's a cage for hateful birds. Don't go back to that. That's, that's what the book Hebrews is telling them, right? So we might consider if Babylon is a city, a great city, why are there seven churches in Asia, the recipients of this letter, told to come out of her? Right? Why are, why, why are we reading this? this that remember, we can't forget this letter was to the seven churches. Why are, are they re- reading, come out of her? The saints who are being written to are nowhere near this great city, is what I'm saying. And I think that we can see that there is a spiritual... Uh, there's an actual city and there's a spiritual condition. In other words, Babylon represents not only Jerusalem, fallen Israel, but also the unfaithful communities that reject Jesus and wouldn't receive him as the Messiah outside of Israel and Judea, out in the different parts of Asia Minor. So we have a literal Babylon, fallen Israel, and especially Jerusalem, and we have a spiritual, anyone who won't, Uh, participate in him as the Messiah. So both physical Jerusalem and temple-based Judaism were judged and destroyed in 70 AD. And we have to remember that Jesus specifically warned the seven churches to withdraw from those pagan influences. Don't go in unto her because they'll lead you to the same spiritual place. John, admittedly, he does switch back and forth between the physical and spiritual Babylon in the book, and it makes it tough sometimes. We see Israel being resented as much more than actual Israel in other parts of Scripture, like Romans 9 through 10 and 11. Uh, In any case, the Lord's admonition to his people is, come out of her, uh, similar to Peter's words in Acts chapter 2, verse 40. Remember that? He said, and with many words we bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Peter preached that day of Pentecost. Save yourselves from this crooked, bird, hateful bird generation. Get out of it. That's why it's written that way. That's why he preached it. Save yourselves, right? And this leads me to a final thought on the types and pictures these verses give us today. We often speak... And it's kind of a, hold on one second. Everybody's sleeping back here. I'm sweating like a caged bird. No one cares. Okay. Uh, And don't anyone say, lose some weight and cut your hair or you'll be in trouble. You want me to go into that again? No, just kidding. (laughs) Okay. Okay. We talk a lot, once saved, always saved. And uh, this language speaks to once saved working out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And it's Christ in us who does it, but the idea of once saved, always saved, uh, we're not earning the salvation, but to keep from walking from the gift, to keep from walking from the gift, we are constantly reminded in many different ways to come out of to choose you this day whom ye will serve, 
to make the decision on who will be your God and who will uh, and who will not. So I ardently maintain that even though we are his, it's a partnership. We are in partnership with God. It's like being in a marriage. Um, Marriage takes dying to self and it requires a good marriage requires effort on both parties. Both people coming together. I've been married 33 years and I know that when there is a difficulty, uh, one has to move forward typically first and the other one has to choose to come in, meet in the middle too. But both are moving. Now, when we talk about a marriage with God, God is always, the, always there calling, always moving in. But we have to make that decision. We have to choose to move forward into him. If you don't, if you're not going to make that decision, then the idea of once saved, always saved is completely lost. That's why we read in in passages in Hebrews 2, written to Jews who were told, don't get involved with that city again and its people. It says in Hebrews 10.26, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no sacrifice, no more sacrifice for sins. But a fearful looking for judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. If we've sinned willfully, and that doesn't mean sins in the flesh, that means go back to Judaism, you Hebrews. Go back to the whore of Babylon. Get back in with the caged birds and join what they're about. There's no more justification for your sins, right? And you will be devoured. That's what it says. In Hebrews 6.4, it says, It's impossible, ready? It's impossible for those who were once enlightened. I don't know how five-point Calvinists justify this stuff. And have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. I'm going to put in parentheses here. If they enter into fornication with Babylon, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. And I'm going to conclude today with Peter in 2 Peter 2.20. He says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that is clear as frickin' daylight. If they have escaped, been saved from the pollutions of the world by what? Knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are entangled. That's that intercourse we're talking about. Again, therein and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Just like Jesus talked about the devils who moved back in. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Known. than after to have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened to them according to a true proverb, the dog is returned to his own vomit again, and the sow has washed to her wallowing in the mire. So these same messages is given uh, by John to the angels. Listen, one last time, verse 4, come out of her. Come out. You cannot be part of her and survive. Her plagues are going to fall. We're coming up to the complete falling of them in the rest of 18 and 19. And then we're going to see, once that's cleared out of the way, the bride, and we'll see if full preterism is the case. Questions, comments? Thank you.
Let me dab myself. Hi, Sean. Hi. It's Patrick. <clears throat> um, so, everyone here, I assume, I can't judge people's hearts, okay? But I assume we all believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's just... We assume that. Okay, we assume that. I can't see your heart. Why someone would be sitting here on a Sunday afternoon, hot, listening to this blowhard, beyond me if they didn't love the Lord Jesus Christ. But carry on with your okay, supposition. Okay, but let me get to my point. Or my question. So since we do believe in him, are we not the bride of Christ then? Body. What's the difference? We're married to Christ. I'm not... I'm trying to... Now... Hear me out. My I'm hearing. my flesh wants to turn to sin and other perplexities of the flesh. Whatever, that's the right word. Um, but my spirit wants to turn to God, and so I want to be married. You were talking about being married. I I want to be married to God, so to speak. Whether he's man or not it doesn't matter. But I want to be married to God. Well, it does matter. But what I'm saying is, is uh, uh I want to be married to God. Sometimes I turn to other things and fornicate to the world. Okay. So uh, in that sense, aren't we the body or no? No, we're the body. We're not the bride. I mean the Let bride. Let me tell you why I say this. And other people may disagree. Because we use, we're the bride of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. Usually it's futurists who teach that because he's coming to take his bride, right? Sure. But his bride, going through Revelation, has taught me his bride is pure. His bride has gone through all of this. His bride were of his own. He came into his own, his own received him not. But as many as received him, he gave the power to become sons and daughters and joint heirs with him ultimately. So that bride, 144,000, we're talking about a very, very select, unique group that were given to him. That's how I see it because he came and took them. He took them and saved yeah. them from the plagues of that generation. So, As the body, we continue to contribute to the body. We continue to, and guess what? Cells in the body die, they're replaced. Body parts fall off, their teeth come out, a new one comes in. We are replaced in the body of Christ forevermore. That body continues and forever will be his kingdom. But his bride was that church that came and he took. Go ahead. So you said that to as many as received, he came unto his own, only saved him not. To as many as received him, he gave power to become the sons and daughters of God. Yeah. Paraphrase. Doesn't that include us, though? Because I become adopted as the Son of God. It does, and you, it does include you. That passage does include you, of course. He gives you the power to become the sons and daughters. But I just don't think it's semantics, but I think it's an important one. I don't believe the bride is here. I don't think the believers today compare in any way to the believers then and what they've gone through for him and what John is telling them. to. And all the apostles, hang on, he's coming to get you. I think that is his bride. And he had his celebration with her in the New Jerusalem. And we now join as part of the body. That's how I see it. May disagree. It's okay. Amen. Amen, brother. When Patrick relinquishes the microphone, all is well inside. <laughs> Anybody else? John. Hi, I'm JSL. Uh, I'm a futurist. But uh, the word fornication, yeah, it's it's represented in uh, beguilement, like this, 
the serpent beguiled our minds, like he's beguiled our minds until we came to Christ. But beguilement means adulterated. So in Revelations, I think you've got to read it both spiritual and material. I would agree. Because I believe that the bride of Christ is us, and the bride of Satan is the beast or the Illuminati or the, the, the rich Jews that control the monetary system of the world. So in 18, they're talking about the destruction of uh, the money market, you know, one world government Merchants. system. That's how I look at it. But yeah. anyway, just, just and that, that view is very around. well received in yeah. the world today. And it may be, yeah. I think from a historicist position, John, it may be true. That it is, that may be true, yeah. that maybe we see a replication of this. Yeah. I'm just talking about what it meant then and there. If yeah. there's application to it today, it's possible. But I don't think it has relation to his coming. I think his coming has come. Well, I, I believe he came in the in first AD, but, I, you know, in the first century, but he came as the father. And he lives in us as the father in words and respect to him. But see, Satan works parallel to him. He uses all his words and confuses us. That's a so different that, that's, discussion. That's where, uh, you know, people have fornication with him. You know, like, especially the rich Jews, because they, they cause all the wars and everything. It's interesting, uh, because fornication, the word in the Greek, is pornia. And, uh, and so Jesus said, it, you can only put your spouse away for the case of pornia. Yeah. But it does not mean uh, necessarily just adultery. It's translated adultery in the King James, but pornea is like Pornogra you said. Pornography. Well, that's, we get pornography from it, but it's like you said, it's beguilement with another thing. So it's another thing in this world we are engaged with, like adultery. Yeah, and then Paul says it's invisible powers that we don't see. Amen. Thank you, John. Anybody else? Front row. Back row. Line one. Front row. Back row. Hold on. Hold on. Phone call. It's okay, Patrick. It shows okay. up right. Put him on hold. He's ready. Line one, as soon as Mary gets it on hold. On hold. Before we get to Robert, you're on campus. Milk. Meat. Meat. Who is this? Again. Hello? She's trying to put him on hold. It's Michael. Hello? Go ahead, Robert. Just a quick comment. Um, verse 3, uh, my NASB is, uh, mentions sensuality. Oh, yeah. Very good. Is that on? Uh, it's not work. No, it's not on. Sorry. Sorry, Michael. Didn't come through. Come back. We're going to try one more time. Patrick is going to, he's going to enlighten us again. I'll just be 10 seconds. Right. I think everything repeats itself, like the historicist. Maybe I'm not a historicist because I don't know everything they believe. But I think history always repeats itself when we see that, when we read history books. So Revelation, it was written to the seven churches. 70 AD happened. He came. But it's repeating itself. That who, is a very solid view. And who knows if he's coming back or not? Yeah, I don't like that one at all because but, who knows if he's not going to wear a pink wig tomorrow and gallop in on a horse. Well, this horse is the only thing I have backwards. faith in is the cross. 
Well, and that's not the only thing. You have the spirit too, not embodied by that cross. Line one. He's on hold. Line one. <laughs> I'm just competing with you. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand, Patrick. We're friends. Love you too, Patrick. Oh, line one. Here we go. Line one. Hey, hey, I'm on. Hey, it's Michael yeah, from Sweden. America. Hey, brother. Hey, hey uh, I was going to make a, a couple comments here, but one to Patrick, brother. If you want to be a bride, you better find someone. <laughs> Get busy. <laughs> anyway, I also wanted to uh, give a comment here about the bride and the body. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad that you actually brought that up today. So Patrick did get, do a good job bringing that up. Uh, that's one thing that I think was really good to clarify because the 144,000, his bride, that were taken up, and the rest of us are the body. But as you clarified, we are still as uh, in the Christ, in the body. Absolutely. Become joint heirs with Christ. Absolutely. And that. So when we die and we're raptured when we die, mm -hmm. that's when we can receive that glory with him. Right. Amen. Yeah. Good, good. good. Excellent. We need to get you a new spotlight. Why? Is my, is my, am I baking under this? Yeah. I mean, everyone could just bring their water bottle up to you and get water from your head. <laughs> 10,000 comedians out of work and we've got one on the phone. I know. <laughs> Love you, brother. Love you too, Michael. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks, you guys, for watching, and thank you guys who are here. Let's uh, pray. Lord, we uh, seek you and help us to understand these little differences that sometimes amount to a great deal when we think about them. And uh, let your spirit guide us in, like, in the bride and what John had to say, you know, relative to these things with engagement with the world and... and uh, and the Illuminati comment that John made and the things like that. That's all part of our culture today, and we talk about it as Christians. So guide us by your spirit through your word to understand if there's a historicist application to this. And if we are reading history, but we're also reading about the cycle of man in this fallen world, quite possible. We pray for Annette, continued cancer treatments, David, recovery from colon cancer, Diana, uh, heart and bone healing, Gracie, continued healing from her cancer, Liz, recovery from a knee replacement, George, broken foot, rheumatoid arthritis, Lisa, of course, in her last stages of cancer, she'll be comforted and, and uh, she'll be able to overcome if it's your will, if Paris, your husband. Uh, we also pray for um, Carla, and who's had an operation on her shoulder, Earl, who's taking care of her, and anybody else who stands in need of your uh, prayer, we just pray you'll make yourself known. If you heal, you heal. We give you the glory. If you don't, we uh, give you our allegiance, and we walk in faith as your children. We pray that you'll move us to be used this week uh, in the way that you want, moving your spirit, giving us your power to say the things that we need to say to our family, friends, and, and even enemies. And we just love you, Lord, and seek you in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. For Christ is the end of the law.